Genesis 49 tonight. Genesis chapter 49. We have uh, tonight and then uh, next week we finish up our study of the life of of Joseph and the last couple of uh, chapters of the book of Genesis. And tonight, chapter 49 is really a wake-up call to contemplate both our present and future life. What we have in Genesis 49 are literally the last words of Jacob to his sons before he dies. In fact, we see this at the very last verse of chapter 49, verse 33, when it says, When Jacob finished giving these instructions to his sons, he pulled his feet up onto the bed and breathed his last breath and went to his people. We're going to talk more about that last phrase at the end tonight. But I wanted to start there because these literally are the last and dying words, if you will, of the patriarch Jacob to his sons. And uh, they say that last words are lasting words. And that is certainly the case here in Genesis 49. First of all, this reminds us as Jacob is dying here after he shares this, that it's just a reminder of how short life is, no matter how long we live on earth. In fact, both in Psalm 39, verse 5, and in James 4.14, God tells us that our human life is like a vapor or a puff of smoke. That's how short our life is compared to eternity. And though even as followers of Jesus Christ, you know, we know those verses... And we can maybe even quote those verses and say, you know, I know life is short and all of that. There's many times throughout our life where we're not really living in light of life being so short. Sometimes we live as if we've got all the time in the world and we're going to be here forever. And yet God wants us to live understanding and knowing and acknowledging how short life is and making every day count for eternity. That is certainly true in this chapter. If there is a lesson here that would sum up the entire chapter, it would be that the actions of believers determine our future blessings role, and responsibility in God's program. Also, our choices made today will affect our descendants for generations to come. That's something to ponder as well. That is one of the themes of Genesis chapter 49. So you'll notice then, if we start off in verse 1, Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather together so I can tell you what will happen to you in the future. Literally in the Hebrew, it's end of the days. A prophetic phrase describing the final period of human history. And what he's doing is, 
he's sharing with his sons not so much what they personally will experience, but as the leaders of the twelve tribes of Israel, what their descendants will experience. But it does have a lot to do with how they have lived their life and the choices and decisions that they have made. He's reminding them about the future. And it's something that, again, you and I not only need to to come to grips, if you will, with death and living every day to its fullest because life is so short, but also to remember that we need to live with the future in mind every day as well. There is a future. There is a God-ordained future. And in a sense, Jacob here is, is prophesying. He has through his relationship with the Lord, been given great insight into what is going to happen generations to come. And now he is sharing that and revealing that with his sons. Prophecy, and one of the reasons why God gives us prophecy in the Bible is because it helps us to focus our attention upon future things. We can get so caught up in the moment that we forget about the future and how the moment will affect the future. Prophecy focuses not only on the future, however, but on living in the present in light of the future. In fact, I wrote here this to myself which is something I think we as Christians need to continually remind ourselves of. Prophecy, then, is not given to satisfy our curiosity, but to shape our priorities in the here and now. Let me say that again. Because many Christians even get caught up in the study of future things in prophecy because it is simply to satisfy their curiosity about what is to come. That is not the reason for God giving us prophecy. He gives us what's going to happen in the future in order for us to shape our priorities in the here and now. That's why he tells us what's going to happen ahead of time. And that's what Jacob was doing here in chapter 49. He is asking his sons to grasp the gravity of what he is about to say. He uses the word listen in verse 2. Assemble and listen, you sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Grasp the gravity of what I am telling you. And and. So much of Jacob's life as a father was sort of passive. Just sort of sitting back and, you know, just sort of watching things happen and not taking charge and taking control and taking the leadership of his own family as he should have. And and it's good that he's doing it now, but the sad thing is it's, now at the end of his life where he's basically assembling his sons before him and said, now here's the way it is. They would have probably 
benefited by having that kind of leadership in their father years before. You also notice in verse 28 of chapter 49 that each of these sons will form the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them when he blessed them and he gave each of them an appropriate or fitting blessing. Meaning a couple things. First of all, yes, all the sons were blessed in this sense. They were all being a They were all being informed here by their father that they would form the nation of Israel. That their, you know, names in a sense would always be at the heads of of different tribes that would form the nation. And they would always have some part in the national history and future history of this nation that God raised up through Abraham called Israel. But obviously what we're going to also see tonight is based upon the life, the choices, the decisions that each of these sons made, each of them is going to have an appropriate blessing or fitting blessing. In other words, in their role or responsibilities or leadership, even unto their own descendants, it wasn't all going to be equal, you see. Because just like we talked about last week, they're all in the family, but the rewards are going to be all different. And the same thing is true for true believers in Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. A true believer is going to get into heaven. They're part of the family. But their role, their responsibility, their rewards, their identity in God's program throughout eternity is all based on their faithfulness or lack of it while here on earth. So, God, throughout the Bible, all the way back to Genesis, is trying to teach us something. First of all, we have a very short life. A short life. It's a vapor. And yet, this life and our choices and decisions and all of that in this short life is really going to determine where we fit into God's eternal program. That seems to be something that many Christians just don't seem to grasp the gravity of. Because if they did, they'd be living a lot different. Many Christians today are very complacent and casual about their Christian life. And almost take the attitude of, well, I know Jesus is my Savior and I know where I'm going to go when I die and that's good enough for me. And they don't realize that not only is that attitude and the choices and decisions made out of that attitude not only going to affect them, but as these twelve sons of Jacob saw, their descendants were also affected by that kind of an attitude and those decisions. See, we don't live in a vacuum. The decisions that you and I make for God or not for God today affect our children, our grandchildren down to the third, fourth generation, way past the time we're here, you see. And that's something that, again, many times we don't, we don't contemplate or consider when making decisions and living our lives. Somehow we've bought into maybe the lie of Satan that our life is ours and that's all it is and, 
and we can do with it whatever we want because it only affects us. The message of the Bible is our life doesn't just affect us. It affects so many other people down the road. And that's exactly the sobering thing that Jacob's sons were being reminded of here at the end of Jacob's life as he shares with them their future. Now, for certain reasons, I'm not going to take all of the sons in the order that they are given in chapter 49. They are given in the order that they are based upon not only their birth order, but again, who was their mother, if you will. Because they all had, you know, different mothers. I'm going to divide it out based on sort of going from those that uh, were, were unfaithful and, and didn't get as great of a blessing to those that got the greatest blessing. That's the way I'm going to look at it. And the first ones that start out really are the eldest ones who are not commended much for their life. Notice some lessons here, and I'll begin reading again in chapter 49, verse 1. Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather together so I can tell you what will happen to you in the future. Assemble and listen, you sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn in position. Okay, remember that. My might and the beginning of my strength. Outstanding in dignity and outstanding in power. But in practice, verse 4, you are destructive like water and will not excel. For you got on your father's bed, then you defiled it, he got on my couch. Reuben had sexual relationships with, obviously, Jacob's wives. couple things. First of all, from verse 3, we are reminded of this. Great gifts are worthless without godly character. Jacob is reminding his eldest son, Reuben, you had so much potential. You, you had great gifts given to you. Not just because you were first in birth order, but God blessed you. But because of your lack of character and integrity, much of these great gifts went for naught. Because of the lifestyle that you chose, the decisions and choices that you made. And in practice, in verse 4, he says, you are destructive like water. It means unstable or rec reckless. He, he's picturing how water, you know, can overrun its boundaries and whatever and cause lots of damage, floods and all of that. And what he's picturing here is an undisciplined life. Reuben, the eldest son, his son, led an undisciplined life. He was like water that wouldn't stay within its borders. And because of that, he obviously did a lot of damage to his own life. And because of that, he did a lot of damage to other people's lives as well. This reinforces why you and I need to strive to be disciples of Jesus Christ. 
and learn to be disciplined and learn to focus on our character more than anything because it doesn't matter how much skill and how much you know potential and how much ability and talent we may be blessed with without character it means very little and you and I all know examples of that even in our own life people who had so much potential but they just couldn't tap into it because their character prevented them from doing so I think obviously because I, as I've told you before, uh, you know, I grew up playing sports and following sports for many years and it was always sad to see that some of these great athletes that could have had great careers ended up blowing up their career because the, you know, they, they got into drugs or alcohol or, or sex or something else and it brought their career to a quick end. So much potential. So much that they could have done. And the same thing is true in ministry and in church. So many pastors and so many Christians who had, you know, great opportunity to serve the Lord, but their lack of character submarined their spiritual life. And Paul talks a lot about that in the New Testament. Their life became, as Paul says to Timothy, a shipwreck, you know. And that's exactly what happened to Reuben. This is why it's important for us to live a disciplined life and to be an everyday, consistent follower of Jesus Christ. Then notice what he says about the next two. Simeon and Levi are brothers. But this term brothers is not, well, obviously they were brothers, It means they were two of a kind. And what Jacob is saying here about Simeon and Levi is, you guys probably weren't going to be good apart, but when you got together, you made each other worse. You you, sort of, what one didn't think of, the other one did, and then you went into cahoots with each other and you accomplished all these evil things. And again, you and I, We know that principle. Heck, I can remember even all the way back, and it's been years ago now, when I was in elementary school. My first grade teacher had to separate me from one of my friends. And you know why? She said, you two can't sit together. You can't behave when you're you're that close. So I'm putting one of you over on this side of the room, and one of you over on this side. I get exactly what Jacob's saying. That's why it's important who we allow to to get close to us and, and who we allow to influence us and who we walk with each day of our lives, who we hang with. Because sometimes, if if we hang around the right kind of person, we can obviously benefit, and hopefully so can we benefit them. But as the Bible teaches, if, if, if we get into the wrong crowd and hang around the wrong person, not only might we damage their life, but they end up damaged, and we both go down. And that's what happened to Simeon and Levi. He goes on to say, what was their biggest hang up? Notice verse 5. Weapons of violence are their knives. They were cruel and violent young men. O my soul, do not come into their counsel. Do not be united to their assembly, my heart. For in their 
anger they have killed men for the pleasure, just for their own delight, doing whatever they please. They even hamstrung oxen. And the Bible even tells us you'll know the character of people by even how they treat animals. If they treat animals cruelly, they will treat people cruelly. And that was Simeon and Levi. They were cruel and angry young men. He goes on to say, Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their fury, for it was cruel. So notice what he says. I will divide them in Jacob. I will separate them and disperse them and scatter them in Israel. They're not going to stay together. i got to separate them because they're not good for each other. And here, even in the first three sons of Jacob, you have two sins, if you will, that, that lots of men struggle with. They struggle with their lack of discipline, especially in sexual areas. And they struggle with anger. And that's exactly what Jacob's first three sons struggled with. And because of this, their role and their leadership, as we learned last week, throughout the kingdom and even throughout eternity, was going to be diminished. In fact, we learned last week that Reuben and Simeon were going to forfeit their leadership positions and that Joseph's two sons, Jacob's grandsons, were going to assume those positions because they forfeited it due to their lifestyle. By the way, I also think it's really interesting that though I don't think the Bible teaches that genetics literally plays a part in in certain sins, and yet I think what the Bible does teach is that one generation and how they live their life and how they respond and, and all of that, their attitudes and their actions and the way they approach life can be passed down from one generation to another. That's why the Bible says the sins of one generation can be passed generation to generation, because it's very interesting to me when you realize that Moses was a descendant of Levi. And why did Moses, why was he not permitted to go into the promised land? Because of his anger. Because he smote the rock and he murdered an Egyptian. He was a man that always struggled with anger. And you and I have to learn to get control of our anger. Men and women. We've got to learn to let the Holy Spirit control our emotions. We've got to learn to channel that in a proper way. And even like Reuben, we can't let our anger be like this water that just flows out over its boundaries because it will do terrible damage. Not only to our lives, but to our children and our children's children, to friends and, and acquaintances and co-workers and everyone around us can be negatively affected, just as Reuben and Simeon and Levi. We're going to skip Judah. We're going to come back to him. And let's go down now to verse 13, to Zebulun. These are very short. Jacob doesn't have a lot to say about them, but he does sort of 
share with us what their future will be. Zebulun will live by the haven of the sea and become a haven for ships. His border will extend to Sidon. He, he will be, and his descendants will be, a, a seafaring people. A people who live by the coastlands. Issachar, verse 14, is a strong-boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees a good resting place in the pleasant land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and become a slave laborer. What Jacob is saying is it's not that he's afraid to work. He's got a good work ethic, but it becomes passive when he allows others to take control of him. And he literally becomes a slave and offers himself as a slave to others. Dan, verse 16, will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And this prophecy came to reality partially during Samson's judgeship. Samson was a descendant of Dan. But notice also that even though Dan produced some judges in Israel, Dan also led Israel into idolatry many times. And that's why Jacob says in verse 17, May Dan be a snake beside the road, a viper by the path that bites the heels of the horse so that its riders fall backwards. And then in the midst of these prophecies about his sons, this sort of seems disjointed, but I think it fits in here in the middle where in verse 18, Jacob says, I wait for your deliverance, Lord. It's like Jacob just has to blurt it out because ultimately Jacob knows that the future of the nation of Israel does not depend on his sons. If that were the case, not good. The future of Israel, just like the future of us or the oasis or anything, depends on God. That's who it depends on and His deliverance. And one day God would send a deliverer to the nation of Israel. 19, Gad will be raided by marauding bands, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich and he will provide delicacies to royalty. Naphtali is a free-running doe and he speaks delightful words. The judge Deborah was a descendant of Naphtali and of course she wrote a lot of great poetry. And then one other one here, as far as the small ones go, if you will. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and in the evening, dividing the plunder. He produced many warriors in Israel's history. Ehud was from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul and Jonathan was from the tribe of Benjamin. Old Testament Saul and Jonathan, but also New Testament Saul, who became Paul, was from the tribe of Benjamin as well. The two that gets the most press, if you will, or prophetic uh, words from Jacob is first of all Judah. If you go back to verse 8, a tremendous prophecy about Judah's future. He even says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. And it's a play on words because Judah's name means praise. So it's like, praise, your brothers will praise you. You see, they'll thank you. 
Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. You're a lion's cub, Judah, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches and lies down like a lion, like a lioness who will rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler shall from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. The nations will obey him. Jacob here is basically informing Judah that he will be the line of the Messiah and that every king from David through Jesus Christ will come from the tribe of Judah. Now obviously this leadership really doesn't become fully realized until 640 years later when David ascends the throne of Israel and becomes the king. But this is the future for Judah. And let's remember something that we've talked about the last couple of weeks. This, this, Judah had some problems too early on, but he repented and he turned his life around. And it reminds us of the fact that, you know, you and I can make mistakes and we can fall, but we can also, depending again on our response and our repentance and, and, and our heart, we can get back on and, and we can achieve great things and we can be a blessing not only again to us, but to our descendants for generations to come. And that was true of Judah. Matthew chapter 1 verse 2 states that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And all of these words that Jacob is sharing here with his son Judah, especially verse 11 and 12, speak about the descendants of Judah will be prosperous and victorious. Binding his foe to the vine, his colt to the choicest vine. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be dark from wine and his teeth white from milk. And it's very interesting to me that even in, in the prophetic scriptures, that, that many of the, of the prophets take this language from Jacob way back in Genesis and even apply it all the way out to Jesus in His second coming. When the Bible talks about Him, him and His robes and all of that being stained with blood, if you will. Like Jacob speaks of here. And then we have Joseph, verse 22. Joseph's blessing is especially abundant. And notice some things about Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough near a spring whose branches climb over the wall. It's a picture of, first of all, Joseph has situated him by a constant source of refreshment and nourishment, but also He's not going to let walls stop him. And we know that through the life of Joseph. He's going to climb up over those walls. He's going to be an, an overcomer. It's not that things aren't going to be against Joseph. We know that to be true. But Joseph isn't going to just lay down and stop. Joseph's going to keep on going. He's going to persist. He's going to be persevering. He's going to be enduring. And we see that even in verse 23. Notice Jacob says, The archers will attack him and they will shoot at him and oppose him. But his bow will remain steady. Joseph didn't have an easy life. But Joseph shows us what can be accomplished when one walks with God. We can be victorious in spite of all the opposition and challenges and things that are thrown against us. 
Jacob is saying, archers will attack him and his descendants. He will always have arrows shot at him, but he will overcome. He will remain steady and his hands will be skillful. And here's the reason why. Is it because of Joseph? No. It's because of the one that Joseph is connected with. And that's a really important thing for us to remember too. It's not who we are, it's who we walk with every day. And notice in these next verses that Jacob uses five names for God here. He says, Joseph will remain steady and his hands will be skillful because of the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. That's the first. Because of the shepherd, that's number two. Three, the rock of Israel, he calls God. Then verse 25, because of the God of your father who will help you. And finally, the fifth name for God here, because of the sovereign God who will bless you. With blessings from the sky above, blessings from the deep that lies below, blessings of the breasts and womb, the blessings of your father are greater than the blessings of the eternal mountains or the desirable things of the age-old hills. They will be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of the prince of his brothers. I want to go back for just a moment and and just take a moment here with each of these names because in them there's there's great encouragement, comfort and reminders to you and I as the people of God about who God is too. And and that's one of the reasons why it, it's good every once in a while to go back and look at the names of God because they can be an encouragement to us that that are contained in the Bible. The first is the mighty one of Jacob. It means the strong one. God is strong. God is mighty. And when you and I, again, live with Him and walk with Him and fellowship with Him, then we can be strong and mighty in Him. Two, He's our shepherd. He's the one that not only leads us, but He's the one that takes us to the pasture and takes us to the water and provides for us the nourishment and the sustenance that we need as our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He is our rock. It means the stone that we can build on. And we certainly even see this imagery in the New Testament where Paul picks up on this and says, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He's the one that the church is built upon. There is no other foundation other than Jesus Christ. If you and I want to build something with our life and make something of our life, the foundation, rock and stone, has got to be Jesus. He's got to be our cornerstone. The one from which everything else is built on. You and I want to build our lives, build it on the rock of Jesus. Then he calls God the God who will help us. The word help means to surround and protect. In our study of of the book of Ruth with the gals on Thursday night, there's this beautiful picture of God as one who has this mother bird that has these great and powerful wings and literally wraps up her young in, 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 in his wings as a protection. And that's exactly what, what's being pictured here. 
that He is a God who will literally shelter us under His wings. You see that imagery throughout the Psalms a lot when it speaks about God. Think about that when you begin to have anxiety and fear and, and, and all of that. Think of God literally as this great, powerful bird wrapping His wings around you and protecting you and drawing you and me to Himself. There is nothing that can touch us that first has to go through God first. And then, Jacob calls him the sovereign God. It literally in the Hebrew just means the Almighty One. He is the Almighty God. All power. All power. For God. What great names for God. And again, notice Jacob's point. Joseph, the reason why you were able to navigate life and be an overcomer and and overcome all the obstacles and challenges and all of that that you had to deal with was because you were connected with God. You walked with God. God was with you. And that's why you were so successful and spiritually prosperous. A couple final things here and we'll wrap it up. If you go over to verse 29, Jacob then instructed them, I am about to go to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. It is the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought for a burial plot from Ephron the Hittite. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were acquired from the sons of Heth. In ancient times, how people would describe death was going to my people. He repeats this phrase again in verse 33 when he says, he finished these sayings, he literally pulled up his feet onto the bed, breathed his last, and went to his people. This ancient expression describes Jacob's reunion with all those who preceded him in death, who had exercised their faith in God. I think what a wonderful picture that Jacob is not only giving his sons, but even giving us. It's this great reminder that though life is short, we weren't built just for this life. We weren't created just for this life. We were created by God to live for all of eternity. And death is simply for us who believe in Jesus Christ, the gateway from this existence to a greater, more perfect existence. And that's the one that really counts. That's the one that's forever. This may last 70, 80, 90, even nowadays 100 years. But compared to eternity, it's a grain of sand. It's a grain of sand. And what Genesis 49 is reminding us of is this. It is the sobering truth that we need to contemplate both our present and future life. That we need to acknowledge our life is a vapor. 
we're only here for a short time, so we've got to make every day count. That the way we live our life now and the choices and decisions we make literally have eternal consequences and ramifications that will echo down through eternity. Just like Jacob's sons, our role, our responsibility, our rewards, where we fit into God's program, God is going to base that on how we live our life now. And then, not only are we affected, obviously, by our life, but this chapter also reminds us about so many others around us that will be affected by our choices and decisions as well. When you and I choose to follow Christ faithfully and remain faithful to Christ throughout our lives, our family, our friends, and everyone around us will be blessed because of our faithfulness to God. But when you and I turn our back on God, when we walk away from God, when we become unfaithful to God, not only are we affected, but our family and friends and everyone around us is negatively affected too. And again, as a reminder, something that you and I need to contemplate, the decisions and choices that you and I make every day not only affect us, but affect our descendants for generations to come. Think about that. Hopefully that will help shape the priorities of our life. In closing, remember, God does not give us prophecy and what's going to happen in the future to satisfy our curiosity. He shares with us future events to shape our priorities in the here and now. To live life now in light of what's going to happen in the future. Next week, we wrap up our study of the life of Joseph. Let's pray. Father, I know that many of us came here tonight and physically, Lord, we were tired. And maybe even, Lord, emotionally, we were drained from the day or the week or the month or even the year that we've had. But God, I pray tonight that as only You can do, that Your Holy Spirit would light a fire within us and would re-energize us and reinvigorate us. That, Lord, we would fight against the opposition and the forces that come against us. And that, God, we would allow You to raise us up. That we would be aroused spiritually and be reignited to truly live for You like never before. Help us, Lord, not to get caught up in the malaise and casualness and complacency of the days in which we live. But help us, God, to truly devote ourselves every day to You and to Your kingdom and to what will last for all of eternity. Because, Lord, as we've been reminded of tonight, our life is very short. We have just such a, a short number of years on this earth to live and then comes eternity.
Help us to live in light of eternity. Every day, God. To shape our priorities for what will really matter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for being here. God bless you. We'll see you next week.